If you would, we're going to be looking at a few passages this morning, but to prepare our hearts, I'd like us to open our Bibles to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. We'll be reading from Colossians 3, 12 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave, so also should you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, thank you for the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the unrelenting, infinite, unfathomable, matchless love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the mercy that will not let us go. Thank you for the humility that we heard about this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that we have received. May you help us to taste and see that the Lord is good as we open your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a well-known story of a young man with a rich father. The young man was quite proud, he was quite greedy, and he was tired of living in his father's house. He wanted to go and do his own thing. So he asked his father for a check for the life savings of his inheritance that they had saved up for him to be given to him when his father died. He took the check, cashed it, and wasted everything on his sin. And when the young man had reached rock bottom, he realized it was time to go back to his father's house. He made the long trek back, he walked block after block, street after street, rehearsing his apology as he went. Father, I've been an absolute wretch. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you take me back as a servant? Would you forgive me? Little did he know, the father was daily watching for his son. He was looking for him, and when the father saw his son a long way off, he ran to his son. And he hugged him, and he kissed him, and he wept over his son who had returned. He gave him the Armani suit. He gave him the iPhone 15. He gave him the Rolex, I almost said Rolodex, Rolex watch. He gave him the Gucci shoes. Does Gucci even make shoes? I don't know. (laughs) He took out the Alaskan crab and the Omaha steaks. And he cooked up the greatest feast for his son who had returned. The father forgave his son. Now you know this story well. It's the story of Luke 15, the parable called the prodigal son. It is perhaps the most famous parable of all of scripture. And it is perhaps the most moving parable of all of scripture. Let me ask you this. 
Why is it so famous? Why is it so moving? Why is it so memorable? It's because forgiveness is moving. Forgiveness is powerful. Forgiveness is memorable. If you can forgive like this, that is moving. If you can forgive like this, that is powerful. The father in the story is, of course, God. God is the one who forgives. God is a God of forgiveness. And it has been said by many that we as Christians act most like God when we too forgive. Alexander Pope, the great English poet, said, To err is human, to forgive is divine. John MacArthur says, Of all the human qualities that make men in any sense like God, none is more, none is more divine than forgiveness. God is a God of forgiveness. Man is never more like God than when he forgives. Forgiveness is godlike. Forgiveness is powerful. And forgiveness is very, very difficult and very, very necessary. To make matters more complex, in today's day and age, there is a tremendous amount of confusion about what forgiveness is and what it entails. Please advance the slides. The most common concept of forgiveness, rampant in America today, is the idea of therapeutic forgiveness. In Lewis Smead's book, Forgive and Forget, Smead describes therapeutic forgiveness as ceasing to feel resentment or bitterness. Ceasing to feel resentment or bitterness. So right away, right off the bat, we can see that therapeutic forgiveness involves a feeling. It's something that you feel. It's an emotion that you have in your heart, deep down inside. It's also important to note that therapeutic forgiveness is private or individual. It does not necessarily involve reconciliation between two parties. It follows then that this kind of forgiveness is primarily motivated by self-interest. You forgive others for your own sake. Smead says, every soul has a right to be free from hate. It's all about you. It's all about your feelings. It's all for your sake. And it follows then, if this forgiveness is true, then it is subjective. That is, it is possible to forgive someone even if they have done nothing wrong. Now, I may perceive that you have done something wrong. I may think that you have offended me in some way, and therefore in my heart I forgive you. I experience the emotion of forgiveness. But from the standpoint of justice, maybe there was nothing that was done wrong. There was no offense. Again, it's all about my feelings. It's all about me. It's entirely subjective. I think we can all agree that therapeutic forgiveness is the dominant view of forgiveness in our culture today. It's the dominant view of forgiveness in America, in our culture, and I dare say, in our churches. Now, without question, there is some truth to therapeutic forgiveness. If you forgive, you will feel better. I'm not disputing that. There are multiple benefits to the forgiver. But is therapeutic forgiveness 
the whole truth? Is it the whole picture? Or is there something more? I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that there is indeed something more to the whole picture of forgiveness. I submit to you that while there is confusion in the world about forgiveness, there is clarity in the scripture about forgiveness. Over the next two Lord's Days, we are going to examine forgiveness from the standpoint of the Bible. We're going to examine the biblical facets of forgiveness under these headings. The biblical principles of forgiveness, the pattern of forgiveness, the priority, the paradigm, the practice, and finally, the power. This morning, we will be looking at the first two, and Lord willing, next Sunday, we will look at the last four. Now let's move on to the biblical principles of forgiveness. And in order to rightly understand forgiveness, we have to understand from the scriptures what forgiveness is not. First, forgiveness does not mean that we mistake evil for good. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Forgiveness does not mean that we confuse our sense of evil and good. Forgiveness does not mean that we call evil good and vice versa. On October 2, 2006, a man named Charles Roberts entered a one-room schoolhouse, an Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. He proceeded to shoot eight out of ten students, little schoolgirls. He killed five of them before he killed himself. Now, this is a very obvious, terrible tragedy. But there were a lot of good things that came out of this, in terms of how the community banded together, how they cared for one another, how they even showed love for the family of the shooter. But there was this one statement, and I know he meant well, but there was this one statement made by the grandfather of one of the victims, and he came out publicly and said, we should not think evil of this man. I beg to differ. We should think of this as evil. We should think of this as an evil event. Brothers and sisters, we are called to forgive. We are commanded to forgive. But that does not mean that we mistake evil for good. In fact, I will argue that forgiveness is based on recognizing how evil the deeds are to begin with. If there is no true offense, if there is nothing wrong, then there is nothing to forgive. We need to see the offense as wrong or unjust before we can forgive the offense. Secondly, forgiveness does not mean the absence of righteous anger. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. Sometimes it is completely appropriate to be angry at a sin. If someone attacks your family and harms them in some serious, serious way, and you just stood back and said, oh, I'm fine, good as always, happy as always, I'm hunky-dory, we would not say that you are such a forgiving person. We would say that you have lost your sense of justice. 
Brothers and sisters, because we are made in the imago Dei, the image of God, we have in the deepest root of our souls, in the deepest part of our, our hearts, what theologians call the judicial sentiment. That is, because of the work of the law that is written on our hearts, our conscience bearing witness, we have deep down inside a deep abiding sense of justice. We want justice. We seek justice. When there is something wrong, we want to make it right. We have the judicial sentiment. There is a place for righteous anger against sin. Nay, there is more than just a place for righteous anger. There is a necessity for righteous anger. And that's why Paul commands us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry. That's a command. It's an imperative. But oh, how crucial is the heart here. How crucial is the heart. There is a place for righteous anger so long as we keep it righteous. And that's why Paul, in the infinite wisdom of the Holy Spirit, goes on to give us a balance to our righteous anger. Ephesians 4, 31-32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There's a contrast here. While righteous anger can coexist with forgiveness, bitterness cannot coexist with forgiveness. Put on righteous anger and put off bitterness. And both of these commands undergird the climactic point of the passage. Forgive one another. Righteous anger must be distinguished from bitterness. Bitterness has two aspects to it. Two sides to the same coin. First, bitterness is when you start to see everything that person does as evil. Or everything that person does as tainted with evil. They may even do a kindness towards you. They may even show an act of love towards you. But in the back of your mind, you are always thinking that it's just tainted with evil. There's something else going on. There's something evil and wicked behind what they're doing. Everything they do, you always see as tainted. Secondly, bitterness means you continually will or hope for someone else's harm or distress. You know you're bitter at someone when you consistently and constantly wish for them to be cut down, brought down, taken off their high horse, humbled, fail, or even be harmed. You want vengeance. Now this is the difference between righteous anger and bitterness. Righteous anger is anger towards sin. You recognize that this sin is wicked, this sin is evil, it needs to stop. This is heinous, but you're always wishing and hoping and wanting for repentance and restoration for that person. But bitterness, on the other hand, is anger towards sin, yes, but it is also hoping for ill will upon that person. Now, this is why God can be angry, but he is never bitter. 
Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. But on the other hand, 2 Peter 3.9 says God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God can be angry at a sinner, but he is never bitter. God can be righteously angry at a sinner without the least hint of bitterness. Now, if you're not careful, bitterness can have two devastating effects. First, bitterness can imprison you. Bitterness can be one of the most incarcerating, imprisoning sins. It can hold you captive. Think about it. That person with whom you're bitter, you know how they win? They win if you let them control you. I'll never forget when I was doing premarital counseling for a Christian couple, and the woman was so bitter at her parents. Admittedly, it seemed like her parents were controlling, overbearing, perhaps even overwhelming. And they had this particular rule in their household for their children growing up about dating. And it's even, to be honest with you, a very fair, maybe even wise rule. But this woman would always say, I will never have that rule in my house for my kids growing up. I will never have that rule because I will never control my parents the way they controlled me. You know the ironic thing? She's still being controlled by her parents. She's not being controlled by their rules, but by the fact that she always wants to do the opposite of their rules, even if the rule is fair and wise. It has nothing to do with the rule. It has everything to do with her heart. She was imprisoned. She was held captive. She was still letting them control her because she was so bitter. Secondly, bitterness can be a barrier to grace. Hebrews 12.15, the writer to the Hebrews says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. The picture here is that bitterness is a root that is planted deep inside. Lesson is, what you plant now, you will reap later. What is the root now will bear fruit later. Bitter people have the root of unforgiveness, the sin of unforgiveness, planted so deep, so early, that it bears a very nasty fruit later in their lives. Bitterness is what happens to a heart when it has been unforgiving for so long. It's planted deep inside. And when it is fully formed, it will defile yourself, your family, your relationships, And make no mistake about it, it will defile the church of Jesus Christ. Even more so, the writer says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Bitter people are in danger of coming short of the grace of God. Friends, be very, very careful with unforgiveness because if you are this bitter person, you run the risk of coming short of the grace of God. 
You know those bitter people. They're bitter at life. They're bitter at their family. They're bitter at everyone. They're bitter at everything. They always have this undercurrent of smoldering anger in their lives. It doesn't matter what you do, they're bitter at you. Now, how likely is it for this person who sees the faults of everyone else to see their own faults? How likely is it for this person who sees so clearly the sins of everyone else to see their own sins and their need for Jesus Christ? Not very likely. Be very, very careful, brothers and sisters, because if you plant the root of unforgiveness deep and early, be careful about bitterness. You run the risk of coming short of the grace of God. Third, forgiveness does not mean that consequences are erased. Every sin has consequences. Sometimes they're legal, sometimes they're physical, Sometimes they're emotional, but every sin has consequences. Being forgiven does not necessarily remove those consequences. I've known pastors who have helped to reconcile relationships in forgiveness, and someone actually still goes to jail. There are still consequences for sin. For instance, think of the great King David. In the Old Testament, the, pro- the books of uh, Joshua Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are called the former prophets, according to Hebrew tradition. Now, if you look at the structure of this section of the Bible, the structure of the former prophets, the entire first half of the former prophets builds up to the coming of the Davidic king. The entire first half of this section of the former prophets, is the rise of King David. And the apex, the goal, the soul and center, the climax of the former prophets is David's covenant with God in 2 Samuel 7. The Davidic covenant is the centerpiece of the former prophets. So David's on this absolute spiritual high. God has made a covenant with me. Everything is going so well. And then comes David's ultimate spiritual low. You know the story. 2 Samuel 11, David commits his great sin. Commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband Uriah. And in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet confronts David, and you know the phrase, you are the man. You are the man, David. And David is broken by this indictment, and he says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses his sin to God. And Nathan says to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. So the Lord forgives David. God forgives David. David's sin is taken away. But notice, there are still consequences. 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 14. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. 
I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight, which happened with David's son, Absalom. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall die. There are consequences for your sin, David. You may be forgiven, but your sin has consequences. The rest of the former prophets, the second half of the former prophets, exists to illustrate the consequences of David's sin. So, brothers and sisters, when you read in 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings of the rebellion of David's children, the death of the child, the split of Israel into northern and southern kingdoms, When you read of David's children acting wickedly, Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Manasseh, Absalom. When you read of Israel's deportation to Babylon and exile among the nations, do you know what you are reading? You are reading the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. There are consequences for your sin, David, even though you are forgiven. The entire second half of the former prophets illustrates consequences of forgiven sin. Fourth, forgiveness is not exacting penance for the offense. And what I mean by penance is that when you feel harmed and when you feel hurt and when you've suffered, sometimes without saying it, you want to make that person suffer as much as you have. You make cutting remarks. You treat them coldly. You give them the silent treatment. You talk about them behind their back. And in actuality, what you are doing is you are requiring penance of that person. You want payback. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Requiring penance is vengeful, harmful, unbiblical. We may say that we are evangelical in our theology, but if we are requiring penance of another person, brothers and sisters, we betray that we are Roman Catholic in our practice. Fifth, forgiveness does not mean automatic trust. I find this to be very, very helpful. Keller says, I forgive you does not mean I trust you. Some people think that they haven't reconciled until they can completely trust the person who did the wrong. That is not the case. Forgiveness means a willingness to try to reestablish trust, but that reestablishment is always a process. The speed and degree of this restoration entail the recreation of trust, and that takes time, depending on the nature and severity of the offenses involved. Until a person shows evidence of true change, we should not trust him or her. To immediately give one's trust to a person with sinful habits could actually be enabling him to sin. Trust must be restored, and the speed at which this occurs depends on the behavior. Thomas Watson says, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. So that's what biblical forgiveness is not. Now let's look at what biblical forgiveness is. 
The Greek word translated to forgive has a very wide semantic range in the New Testament. It can be variously translated to let go, to send away, to cancel, to remit, or to pardon. But even if you look at all of these words together in this word group, you can see clearly that the the central primary idea is the idea of pardon. To pardon someone for something. The primary image the Bible gives us is the image of debt. For instance, Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, if we put the primary biblical idea and the primary biblical image together, we see that forgiveness involves pardon of debt. To pardon someone for something that they owe you. Now, what then is the biblical view of forgiveness? Keller defines biblical forgiveness as, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. But it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. If someone wrongs you, there are only two options. One, you make them suffer, or two, You refuse revenge and forgive them, and then you suffer. The pardon of debt, it involves voluntary suffering. For example, when I was growing up, high school, my friend and I were playing the silly, silly game. We were playing volleyball with one of those rubber handballs, you know, the ones that you play with in elementary school. We were playing it inside his living room. And you can see where this is going. We were playing volleyball with it, and we were laughing hysterically at the whole spectacle of this until I hit it just out of his reach, and it hit a very expensive-looking vase, and the vase hit the floor and shattered into a thousand pieces, and then the laughing stopped immediately. (laughs) It turns out this was the vase that my parents had given his parents the previous Christmas. (laughs) That's the irony. Well, let's say in this situation, I have no idea how much this vase costs, but let's just say hypothetically it costs $200. Now, I owe him, and really his parents, $200. If I pay him for the debt that I have incurred against him, I have $200 less in my bank account, and in that sense, I suffer justly. But if he forgives me, He is out $200, and he lost his vase. In that sense, he suffers. Either way, he will pay for it, or I will pay for it. In any case, someone always pays every debt. Now, you don't have to be a financial expert to know that whenever someone sins against you, you lose something. It may not be money or material object like a vase, But you might lose reputation, you might lose opportunity, you might lose a relationship. At the very least, you lose inner peace. And you want payback from that person. Well, if someone hurts you, you can either get back at them for it and make that person suffer, or you can absorb it yourself, forgive them, and then you suffer. There is no forgiveness without suffering. Either way, someone suffers. Brethren, Jesus Christ suffered 
voluntarily. Just as we heard this morning from Philippians 2, Jesus Christ voluntarily suffered so that we could be forgiven. Let us walk in the footsteps of our Savior and suffer voluntarily in our forgiveness of others. Which brings us to our next point, the biblical pattern of forgiveness. And here we return to our original passage in Colossians 3. Now, if you read this list, you will note that this list is actually not too different from the list of other religions. Look at Buddhism or Hinduism or Confucianism, even Islam. Don't all religions and moral systems to some degree say, don't be angry, be kind, forgive? To some degree, they do. The commands are the same. They're the exact same moral duty as other religions. But the motivation is different. In other religions, they will tell you to accomplish these moral duties by willpower because it's your moral duty. That's just what you have to do. So when you're bitter, you sit down and you tell yourself, I know I'm not supposed to be bitter. Stop it. Stop it. I know I need to forgive because it's my moral duty. Now, that's right. It is your moral duty. But that doesn't work. And then again, you already knew that. The great Puritan John Owen, in his monumental work, The Mortification of Sin, gives us a different strategy. If you look at scripture, whenever the apostle wants us to do something, he always points us back to who we are as Christians. Before he calls to obedience, he reminds us of identity. This is who you are. Therefore, let that impact what you do. In other religions, transformation happens after you perform your moral duty. Transformation happens as a result of performing your moral duty. In Christianity, it's the opposite. Transformation happens before you perform your moral duty. You performing your moral duty happens as a result of your transformation. It's the opposite, and it is 100% unique. This is not just about willpower. This is about identity. This is about who you are. Theology affects practicality. Doctrine affects living. Position affects practice. In light of who you are as a new creation in Christ, this is how you ought to behave. Borgman says, forgiveness is an act of the will to do for others what God has done for us. Position affects practice. So let's see first what God has done for us. The privileged position of the forgiven believer. Colossians 3.13, just as the Lord forgave you. What has God done for us? Well, first, God takes the initiative to forgive. Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Every person who has ever believed, every Christian in this room here this morning, has been chosen by God from eternity past. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead men do not choose. And God, out of the fullness of his Father's heart, looked upon us, took the initiative, and made us alive in Christ. We were like those sitting in darkness who saw a great light. 
We were like those sitting in the tomb, dead in our trespasses and sins, when God called out, O believer, come forth. We were like those who slept the sleep of death, and Christ said to us, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. God took the initiative to choose us and forgive us. Secondly, God grants forgiveness graciously. The Greek word forgive here means to give freely as a favor, to give graciously. It reminds us that we do not deserve this. Forgiveness is often unmerited and undeserved. Then we see that God grants forgiveness as a promise. When God forgives, he promises that he will never hold our sins against us. Jeremiah 31, 34, the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God promises to never bring to remembrance our sin again. Now, this does not mean that God forgets. God doesn't forget. God is omniscient, just as we heard this morning. God doesn't forget our sins. Instead, the Hebrew is very active. God will actively choose not to ever bring our sins to mind. God will actively choose not to remember them anymore, not to hold our sins against us anymore. He promises to pardon. We also see that God grants forgiveness fully in a judicial sense. This means that when we approach God as judge, when we are in Jesus Christ, we are fully forgiven. Colossians 2.13 says, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. It does not say half of our transgressions, three quarters of our transgressions, 99.999% of our transgressions. No, all of our transgressions. All of them. Brothers and sisters, you will never experience a single drop of wrath for a single one of your sins. So judicially, there's no such thing as unforgiven sin in the life of a Christian. Now this is different from practically, right? Which leads us to our next comment. God also forgives us continually in a familial sense, in a paternal sense. When we relate to God as judge, There is no such thing as unforgiven sin in the life of a Christian. But God is more to us than just a judge. He is also our father. We are also his adopted sons and daughters. Have you ever wondered in the Lord's Prayer, and you've probably memorized it by now, have you ever wondered why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, as we have forgiven our debtors? Why do we pray that? Aren't all of our sins already forgiven? Well, yes, in the courtroom before the judge. But look at the context of the Lord's Prayer. Who are we speaking to? Our Father who is in heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, we are not addressing God as a defendant to a judge. We are addressing God as a child to a father. It's a difference of relationship. Thomas Watson, 
asked the question, is God angry with his pardoned ones? Answer, though a child of God after pardon may incur his fatherly displeasure, yet his judicial wrath is removed. Though he may lay on the rod, yet he has taken away the curse. Correction may befall the saints, but not destruction. Here's a chart by J. Adams comparing God's forgiveness of us. Judicially, we speak of God as judge. Parentally, we speak of God as father. Judicially, our rebuke is condemnation, but parentally, our rebuke is correction. Judicially, our sense of guilt produces a fear of judgment. Parentally, our sense of guilt produces remorse over offending the Father. Judicially, we confess as an enemy surrendering. Parentally, we confess as a child submitting. Judicially, forgiveness lifts the threat of hell and establishes a new relationship with God, whereas parentally, forgiveness lifts the threat of temporal punishment and improves a previous relationship with God, a relationship already established. So there's a difference. There's a difference. Now that's our position, brothers and sisters. Shall we not bask in our position as forgiven believers? Shall we not bask in the sweetness of our position as those who have been forgiven in Christ? Shall we not taste and see that the Lord is good? Well, now that we've tasted, now that we've basked, the Lord requires something of us. So we move on to the practical response of the forgiven believer. So also should you. So also should you. This is how we ought to forgive one another in light of how God has forgiven us. In forgiveness, God takes the initiative and so should we. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there Before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus makes very clear that if we know that someone has something against us, we must take the initiative and go to them for reconciliation. Matthew 18 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, here Jesus says the opposite. If you know that you have something against your brother, go to him and reconcile. What is the commonality between these two passages? It's always your initiative. It's always your initiative. If you have something against your brother, approach him. If your brother has something against you, you still approach him. In this sense, God has us cornered. Jesus has us cornered. It doesn't matter who started it. What matters is is that it's our responsibility as Christians to take the initiative and go and reconcile. God took the initiative with us, and we ought to take the initiative with others. This means that we are also to forgive graciously. Whether that person deserves it or not, we ought to forgive them. 
We are also to grant forgiveness as a promise of pardon. So when you forgive someone, practically you are saying, I will not remind you of your sin. I will not take this sin and throw it back in your face days later, weeks later, years later. Now, of course, you can talk about the sin to learn from it and grow from it and develop your relationship. But this means that I will not throw it back in your face with the intention to harm. This also means I will not mention it to anyone else. I won't go behind your back and talk about it with other people. Remember the principle of Matthew 18, keep the circle as small as possible. This also means I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. God refuses to allow himself to dwell on our sins, and so also should we. God chooses not to remember our sins, and so also should we. Now, I know, brothers and sisters, very practically, it is hard. It is very, very, very hard to do this. Sometimes it, all it takes is a sight, a smell, a sound, some little piece of remembrance that brings the memories flooding back. Brothers and sisters, this is hard, but what this is telling us to do is that when those memories come flooding back, think on your forgiveness in Christ. Think about the love of God. Think about how secure you are in the mercy and kindness and love and forgiveness of your Savior and bask in it. It's not easy, but it's necessary. We must also grant forgiveness fully. When you say to someone, you're forgiven, it behooves you to mean it. Mean it. When you say, I forgive you, mean it. If you remain bitter at that person after you have said, I forgive you, then guess who's sinning now? You are. You are. Also, we should grant forgiveness continually. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter asked Jesus how often we should forgive our brothers. Seven times? And Jesus says to him, 70 times seven. A lot. A lot. Be continually forgiving. Think of how many sins God our Father forgives us for every single day. We ought to forgive others continually. So now that we've looked at what biblical forgiveness is, let's compare therapeutic forgiveness to biblical forgiveness. This is a chart adapted from Borgman. Therapeutic forgiveness is subjective, a feeling, an emotion of offense. Biblical forgiveness is objective. It is a debt that is owed. Therapeutic forgiveness is a feeling. Biblical forgiveness is a commitment to pardon an act of the will to do for others what God has done for us. Therapeutic forgiveness is private or individual, whereas biblical forgiveness is something that happens between two parties. The goal is always reconciliation. Therapeutic forgiveness is motivated by self-interest, whereas biblical forgiveness is motivated by love for neighbor and love for God. In therapeutic forgiveness, justice is not critical, whereas in biblical forgiveness, justice is the basis of forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, I have to say that I know that this is not easy. 
I know that we are talking about deep wounds, deep scars, maybe abuse or slander, a relationship that has been lost for so long. Brothers and sisters, I exhort all of us today to forgive. Don't wait. One thing I've been able to do is be at the bedside of people who are dying quite a bit. I've seen a lot of people on their deathbed. And you know, one of the things that's always struck me is a lot of those people, as they're dying, they want to reconcile with someone. They want to forgive someone. Or they want someone to forgive them. And I've seen families flying in from all parts of the country because they haven't spoken to this person in so long because they just want to forgive. They just want to reconcile before that person dies. Brothers and sisters, the sad part about it is oftentimes that's too late. It's just too late. So I urge you, don't wait till your deathbed. Do it now. Forgive. And I know that I have no idea what each and every person in this room is going through right now. I have no idea what's in your heart. But you know who knows? God. God knows. Do you know who else knows? You do. You know what you need to do. Just as the Lord has forgiven us, so also should we. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, we are just so broken before you. We're broken by the matchless love of Jesus Christ. And we're broken because we know that as we heard this morning, we ought to have the humility of Jesus Christ, the brokenness from the gospel, rooted in the gospel, to forgive others. Lord, we do not have the strength in and of ourselves to do this. Would you give us your strength? Help us to do what you have done for us. Help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.